0: Hello, and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security, joined by the host with the most, the Hall of Famer, Tony Sager. Tony, how are you, sir?
1: Oh, Great. Thank you, Sean. Great to be uh, back on with you and to start the year year off with uh, some exciting conversation, I'm sure.
0: Absolutely. So one of the things we like to do on this podcast and one of the things we do uh, with CIS is we make predictions. So what we're going to do today is we're going to review last year's predictions, see how close we were, see how far away, see if these things have been solved, or see if we've still got some work to do. And um, Tony, I'll start off with uh, one of mine if I could. So in the blog post, I had put um, automation as a force multiplier looking at the concepts of security operations and building capabilities for security orchestration, automation, response. And really, when I think about what I've seen last year, there's a lot of great technologies. But one of the things that I still believe we have work to do is the operationalization of those elements, getting to an implementation framework, getting to a point where it's a repeatable incident management that can be integrated into such a platform, but really one that also could be shared, Tony. It's one of those elements where it's a problem we all face, you know, that these are not, uh, in a lot of cases, unique to individual organizations. And so I think there's an ability there to create. Um, Either rule sharing or framework of how to develop and integrate such a capability into an enterprise. So I still believe there's work to be done. I believe we've made a lot of progress. A lot of great vendors out there doing work in the space, but work to be done.
1: Yeah, Sean. I think it's a it's a uh, number one. It's a great theme, right? And the the theme of this sort of operational automation was a big thing in the mid two thousands. You know, especially within government. And uh, as you said, there's there's a lot of hard work to be done yet. But it also, you, you know, in, in some sense, right? The security automation was like the predecessor to where we are today with AI. You know, too many people think there's some magic that's going to happen. But to really get the kind of power you're talking about, right? It's it's not just well we we buy a thing and give me that you know give me a few pounds of that automation stuff. It does require both discipline but also rethinking a lot of activity, right? You're designing a machine that's, that, uh, is driven by inputs, you know, that creates outputs that's going to, going to, uh, have to operate right in a complex changing environment. So you, it's not as simple as let me just buy some technology. You really do need to rethink a lot of things from technology, but also business process and, and management and and how you buy things right up front to, just to get the pieces into place. And on the industry side, you know, the you, you can't do this one by one, right? We need sort of standard ways to do this so that people can pick the pieces. There's no like, I'm gonna buy one giant automation thing. I'm gonna piece it together. And so what's killed a lot of good ideas back in those in the early days was you you have this sort of hidden integration costs. Well, I've got a tool to do this, and tool to do that, tool to do that. And you wind up kind of throwing the integration problem to your poor, overworked human beings, right? They're, they become the integration engine that tries to make sense of it all. And so, but I, I agree with you. There, you know, it's certainly not a solved problem, but I would say it's, you know, there's been a lot of progress on standards kinds of things, people understanding the scale of this problem, uh, recognizing the need for speed, right? You, you, where, where am I going to design this in a way that is uh, consistent with the pace of both technology change and attacker? activity and so we're not going to get there by training human beings to read faster. We're going to get there by you know, building machinery that will uh, that will get us there quicker. but also recognizing you know I think in your point also was um, we do like to pretend in this industry that everyone is a special snowflake but in fact you know most of your machinery of defense, is is really shared machinery, right? There's no reason for it to be unique. It really should be standard pieces, uh, relatively standard architectures, standard ways to both represent and move data around. So I don't have to build translators, converters, you know, fancy parsers to move stuff. And so I think there's, um, you know, some 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 great and fun you know, challenges, having spent a lot of time working on this kind of stuff, you know, more on the strategy end, and you, you've had to deal with it on the receiving end, right? How, so uh, having a sense for how, how much work is there to put these pieces together. But I, I do think there's been a lot of progress recognition that there is something important to be done here. Um, now, so now we, we leap to the, okay, here's today's model, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about things like uh, generative AI or whatever. And again, we have to kind of make sure we don't, uh, be tempted by the magic bullet maybe last year i've heard we talked probably zero trust or something you know like oh zero trust how perfect i love that zero thing right there's less to do Well, no no no, there's nothing more to do to get to that point and so don't we don't want to kind of fall for the marketing part of it you want to say what it does though is it lets you focus your work right i'm I'm building in the model of automation into everything I do, which is I think uh, you're spending your days thinking about zero trust, right? It's just, right. I'm building it into everything from how I buy, how I train and how I operate.
0: Absolutely. I mean literally every project, any innovation that we're doing here has a zero trust element incorporated. It just just happens to be. And and I'll give you just the the, the side angle here, Tony. It's not zero trust. There's the zeros added to my budget in order to get to that trust. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> perfect.
1: That's right. The, the boss looks at that and goes, Zero trust
0: perfect. Yeah,
1: exactly. uh, we can we can uh, we can hold the line on Sean's budget. How, how
0: exactly, exactly. Now what One, Tony, that I wanted to discuss um, that you had made um, in sort of the same vein as uh, elements we've been discussing in the past, but was from the federal side. And I just I'll read it verbatim because it it deserves um, the review. So in 2023, we'll see the release of the Office of National Cyber Director Strategic Plan predictions ranging from yet another restatement of the same message to something stronger. And I I think that's where we want to get to the strength here, but we've provided CIS has provided input and we hope it presents more progressive thinking and about incentives, a more distributed partnership based model and that the release and reaction to the plan in early 2023 will make or break indicators of the national progress we expect in the next two years. And really, I get to a point here where there has been progress, but that the strength of that progress, I think, is something you were aligned, uh, uh, you know, allied uh, to here, was. Um, where is that strength where is that um element being either dictated or required for this to fundamentally work um really across the federal space, but, you know, federal permeates, right? It's not just federal. It it, it really affects uh, strategies for large organizations, small organizations, multiple uh, critical infrastructure elements as well. But anyway, Tony, wanted to get your your thoughts on that prediction.
1: Boy, <laughs> that was a pretty heavy one, Sean. <laughs> I wrote that. Huh? No, no, I and I really believe that. I think
0: that,
1: you know, at the time last year, and uh, we, we were seeing – you know, the release of that report. And, uh, you know, we were, and, and I know a number of the principles, you know, in full disclosure to the audience here, right? People I work with at NSA and, and uh, in government across the years. And, um, you know, we are well served by the kind of people that have taken those really difficult jobs. Um, you know, part of the political process, right? Is that the, the life, the sort of lifespan of the cyber senior executive in government, the political appointees is pretty limited. So they tried to get a lot done in you know in the limited time window, and so that's what that was the point of my I'll, I'll call it that that uh, slightly snarky quip about the yet another restatement of the problem, but I did see uh, you know in le- in the in the most recent one you know, led by Chris Inglis from the office of the National Cyber Director. Well, when the creation of the Cyber Director's Office was the to recognize right the need for really much much stronger coordination across the federal government, and I think we saw a lot of progress in that over the last year. Uh, I think the report was more specific uh, around the government progress. By the way, you know I stay in touch with what NSA releases to the public, and you know what what CISA is sending out, and FBI and so forth. And I will say, and I have sent notes back to my old friends. As a, as one of the alumni, it is heartwarming to see the numbers of joint agency uh, advisories, bulletins, warnings sent out, right with heavy analysis good recommendations. And that was not true, you know, 10, 15 years ago in my time. It was always a struggle to get things, uh, you know, uh, out under a multi-agency kind of a uh, framework. And what that does is, as you said, many things, maybe they aren't directly subject to federal control, but they follow the federal example. So when you can get the FBI and NSA, this, uh, CISA, you know, the big players in cyber and the federal government agree that something is a problem, that's, you better pay attention, right? Because they're not saying that lightly and they have sources of information that are you know, not, not in, within reach of, of typical enterprises. So, I, so I, uh, you know, watching the behavior part of the federal government has been promising in this release of information, multi-agency, uh, speaking as an NSA alum from the day. Um, in fact, I've reminded the, the team back there The first sort of operational guidance from NSA, my group released to the public in June of 2001, and it started kind of a tradition of that stuff. Well, the stuff they're releasing today is much more complex, much more frequent, much greater volume, much greater uh, sort of content behind it than we were doing back then. So it's really heartwarming to see it, right? Again, that's an active leadership role, right? Trying to sort out these things for the public and to give out this advice and, you know, what happens in government is this complicated calculus, right? Do we help or hurt by giving out information? Do we make the bad guys smarter quicker than we make the good guys smarter? That is a everyday kind of occurrence there. So, but, you know, in balance over the year, I would say I was encouraged by the release of the strategic plan. There was a lot of good listening. Some ideas got rolled into there. We saw a lot more focus on industry and government joint activities like the Joint uh, Cyber Defense, uh, JCDC, uh, stuff out of CISA. Um, so good cooperation. I've been a part of the uh, Cyber Safety Review Board, as you know, and kind of you know recognizing that this is across, across the government, across the private sector. We need to draw lessons learned so that we all focus on what the national level problem really is and be clear so that the community at large has good understanding and has a good action plan. So a lot of good things I think really came out of that. We are also seeing, uh, I'd say rise in the last year, one of the classic dilemmas of, of national cybersecurity has been the uh, voluntary mandatory cycle, you know, and it, that's, it's been a hard for us, hard one for the nation to come to equilibrium on that, you know, and there's, there's pros and cons, right. That is that, you know, we get, we reap the benefits of, a marketplace of technology and new ideas popping in all the time. But we also wind up sort of eating the risk as the adopters of technology whose risks are not well understood that don't aren't understood for some period of time. So do you try to slow down the rate of innovation in hopes to have better confidence to it? Or do you sort of take that and sort of deal with the, the risks as they come? And, you know, again, sort of an implicit decision has been we have leaned towards let's, let's get the benefits of technology and we'll figure it out. We'll figure out the risks as we get there. I'm, I'm cartooning, a complicated situation, of course. But I'd say um, sort of recognizing root cause issues like the cyber safety review board and other mechanisms. If you look at CISAs, um, uh, um, the, uh, you know, secure by default, secure by design, focus, right? That's pushing thinking earlier in the life cycle to try and build more Um, uh, confidence in the components that we have. I think those are all really good signs. You know, again, there's not one thing, but I'd say this has been a very active year from the federal level of taking some of these things on. You've seen individual federal agencies push on um, things like mandatory reporting requirements, mandatory cyber activities, you know, what are the cyber expectations of companies doing business within a given regulated sector, uh, we've seen the rise of uh, activity in state governments to try and bring more. Uh, so the pendulum has swung a bit, and the, you know, this is a, a common risk issue for the entire population, and we need to be more specific, more uh, directive about it. Again, this is this is not easy, but I, I give uh, significant credit to the folks working these things from the federal level over the last year or so. Not a solved problem. There's more to go, and again, you have to deal with the. The, the complexities of the political process, right? Of the willingness and uh, rec- of recognition of the problem and the willingness to take the kind of you know, pretty strong action that uh, it would take to really shift our economy in the right direction. There's an area that I, I, I guess I, I didn't see enough of, or I wish I'd seen more of over the last year, kind of from this perspective is uh, you you uh, quoted back one word I use, incentives. You know, and incentives... The way I just, just described it in the last couple of minutes was a little more on the you know uh, a carrot and stick and more stick than, than, than carrot. I think we have to look at incentives in a more holistic uh, way to include market incentives in a more. One of the problems that we all face as consumers in the complicated cyber market is it's hard to make good decisions about technologies and risks. You know where's the we don't have the kind of machinery we have in other industries right ul certifications and you know sort of codes of conduct that you know things that are have sort of history and um, a specific meaning behind them you know we don't ask consumers to make uh, decisions about electrical engineering or, or whatever right we we build a lot of risk into machinery so that their role in the marketplace as buyers um makes it uh, sort of natural or easier to make good decisions about risk and harder to make bad decisions about risk, right? Even if you don't know much about the complexities of it. In fact, we don't don't expect people to make, to understand, you know, is it safe to fly on an airplane or not, right? We build most of that risk into machinery. So this idea, but looking at the economic issues, the behavioral incentives, along with the uh, enforcement of and mandatory and regulatory. I think we have to look at that more holistically, and I think uh, I think there's room to grow there, you know, in, in terms of that, right? Sort of creating uh, the, these marketplaces that are analogous to, to what we might expect in public health or, or transportation safety or, or other areas.
0: No, absolutely. I think that's awesome, and and one of the things, Tony, is you know it leads us to certain paths of uh, elements of resistance. And I think the incentive-based approach, like you say, the less stick, more carrot in that area will lead to either more holistic adoption versus compliance adoption for compliance sake versus security implementation for security sake that's where we need to be because the stick can only go so far it's only so long and really when you look at an adversarial element and you know we've um impose necessarily the risk on the technology but that technology is under constant attack. I could make a really great decision today and tomorrow it's the worst decision I ever made and that's ultimately the adversarial element that is not really uh, allowing us to treat that risk necessarily in such a way that allows us to mitigate it. We're making the best decision with the information we have but that information at the velocity that we see now um, ultimately, changes on a daily basis, and it's uh, you know a tricky thing to get right, and uh, you, you know you're seen as a magician or, or like you like to say the wizards, right? You, you made that work, well done. But in a lot of cases, you know, it's uh, hopefully not luck, but just well informed um, to a point that you can you know build elements of trust into an underlying model. But it, you know, a model cannot be completely trusted forever, uh, and needs to be reassessed.
1: Yeah, no. Just- <laughs> That's a, that's a great point, Sean. I mean, you know, I, I spent some time in the 90s thinking about and studying what, kind of what was happening in uh, security modeling and a lot of brilliant, you know, math, math wonks and, and uh, system thinkers. Uh, I said the, the challenge was, here's to me, and you hit it, the presence of the active adversary <laughs> just screws up your models. Why don't they behave? Of course. well, But, but of course, right? Their, their job is to work outside your models. right? That, that's inherent you know if you're defending here they go there right and they do and they lie cheat and steal can you imagine that right they bribe human beings they create front companies they, what you know it's it, and, and that's the problem that we have right there's so modeling is important but you have to be prepared for this idea that your model breaks down and that's that's you know that that's realistic and what that leads i think again it, it so there's not a model kind of algorithmic Definition here of security, right? And again, you hit it, I think, well, which is what what should I expect of an enterprise owner? I should expect a sort of a, I'll call it, and the the, the term that that we have spent a lot of time on, and we're, we're typically not lawyers here at CIS, but we work with a lot of them, is reasonable. Does the business enterprise owner make knowing, reasonable decisions about security of their customers, their information, their products? And that's, you know, as social creatures, right? That that seems like it's okay for us to have a, a social expectation, right? That you will hand, you're my vendor, you will handle my responsibility, you know, in a reasonable way. I don't expect perfection. I don't get perfection if I fly on a commercial aircraft either. But I do expect that you have taken the steps, right, that would give us all confidence that almost all the time things will be fine. That, that you know what the, you know, you've made a decision that said you've considered the risks, the rewards, you've considered my safety, you've considered, right, the, the, the protection of the uh, information I agree to share as we enter into a business transaction, and you've made a reasonable decision. I do not expect you to bankrupt your company in the name of security because then I lose twice, right? I, I lose the opportunity to benefit from what you could. So, but at the same time, if you engage in unreasonable behavior, reckless behavior, right, that doesn't have regard for me, then frankly, you've got to pay for that. <laughs> and so, but the again, the consumer has no way of knowing all that on their own, typically. And so we do have to sort of figure that out there. So so yeah, I think you're right. So that, that shifting, so it's more nuanced, right? It, is it reasonable? And you spend a lot of time in your role as a CISO thinking about that, not convincing the board that you're... That you're a magician or that our security is perfect, but helping them understand the the risks there and the, you know, that is, get to a joint perception of the threat that our service or our activity represents and the the potential risk there and the steps that make sense in terms of uh, affordability, uh, operationalization, right? That, That, you know, get something I can actually execute that both allows us to deliver the service that we're here to do but does it in a, in a reasonable and responsible way. And so that's, you know, you not only have to do the job, but sell the job, you know, to people who don't spend their days up, uh, dealing with it in the way that you do.
0: Exactly, exactly. Now, completely agreeing, I mean, it's even touched on a number of the other topics in the predictions that we were discussing because it's it's such a salient point and, and, and really why – that direction. I mean, we've talked about reasonableness. Even uh, some of the predictions that Randy Rose, uh, at the time he was senior director, now VP uh, in uh, at CIS, you know, and he was focused on the open source supply chain security, right? And there's some elements of that coming out of the work that you've done at the Cyber Safety Review Board, and the elements that we've seen in terms of kind of this new modeling, as it were. To the open source, we you know it comes through solar winds. We see log4j. All of these things change our perceptions. And really, why it leads me to that that same question is, you know, that day prior, I could have selected any vendor. And the following day is, uh, you know, that there's no holes barred. We've got to be patching. We've got to disable systems. We've got to look for alternate vendors. Is it's uh, so dynamic, but. Uh, Again, Randy had hit some really great ones as well. I mean, he was talking about uh, uh, threats coded in newer languages, and we've seen an increase in Go, Rust, and a number of different languages. And uh, really, um, he hit that one out of the park because we've seen a lot in that space. I mean, Rust is becoming very much one of the most popular, uh, I believe, object-oriented programming languages, and Go is a... uh, Uh, as a uh, interpreted language, uh, very much so in that space. One of the things he also touched in, uh, and I I just wanted to review this with you, um, is the decreasing affordability of cyber insurance. Any thoughts there that you've seen, Tony, in this space? Because it's been... um, I think as the insurance and the actuarial sciences have started to model or at least approach the insurability of certain organisations and their practices, it leads them to, you know, kind of the stick carrot—a process of well, if you have these respective controls and alignment to a certification and attestation, that gives us some confidence to be able to insure you. But any thoughts in that space that you've seen last year?
1: Yeah, I, I, it's clearly been uh, a, a bit of a, maybe chaos is too strong, but you know realignment of, of that marketplace. And my experience with the insurance industry goes back decades. And um, it was, I, t- t- this will tell you how naive I am as a government guy back back in the day, s- sitting in a room full of the and they referred to themselves as quant jocks, you know quantification uh, jocks. and you know, when, you, when you're a dweeby math guy like me, you have to come up with some macho sounding a uh, job title, apparently. So Quan was it. But the idea was, and, and one of the senior people said a phrase I'll never forget. I may have shared it with you before, which was, we can't figure out what the cyber equivalent of Florida is. And, and his point was, right, we have a model. We can tell you what the weather patterns look like for the previous 100 years. We know what it costs to rebuild a residential uh, dwelling in this thing or a commercial building. You know, we... We can count prob- uh, probabilities. We have enough data that we can build a model, and it's sufficient to allow us to build a pricing model, where we, you know we can account for right the inevitable uh, disasters and yet still make a profit. All right, and then there's the occasional you know hundred year event that you got to deal with. But so, but in the early days, and this was a, a, a strong impression I had because I talked to a number of the folks in there. Was the idea was because you know naively I thought oh. This is a great lever to help improve security. And while there are many wonderful human beings working in that industry, you know, se- uh, improving security was not at the top of their list of things to do. These are commercial businesses by and large, right? They're trying to make money. So it became, there was a little bit of chaos in the sort of front end of this of, geez, we have to write, we have to get in there. There's money to be made. And, and I, this is almost the exact quote from one of the leading brains of the industry back then. Uh, if my, you know, here's my benchmark telling you, you, you know, you want to like wave the flag and do grand things. If my competitor can write a policy in 30 minutes, our target is 20 minutes. If they ask 50 questions, our target is 25 questions, right to make it because they're trying to remove the friction in the business transaction. And he says, and by the way, we control the game anyway. We write the exclusions, the caps, right the uh, war clauses and all this stuff. so', so we're, we got to be in there. Right? And this is capitalism. I'm okay with it. I'm not It just was like a, an eye-opener for me that it a naive approach, right? We need a way that helps them succeed as a business while they, you know, as an industry succeed, right, in making money. And so for, for a while, there was a bit of a Wild West where it's like everyone's writing policies because, hey, there's just money to be made and it's okay. Remember the first controversies over the war clauses, well, we're, we're going to deny payment because this came from, obviously came from a former Soviet state. And then, what what? And and then ransomware threw everything like, right, in a in a blender. It's like, oh, we're, we're having to like do big, really big payouts. And then you saw a lot of companies retreat from the industry, right? Because now they're losing money. We're not in business to lose money. And now we've been seeing, you know, gradual uh uh, not gradual is too soft, but significant sort of climb back in. But rethinking the whole question of insurability and rate setting. And what can I base that on? Okay. And there's lots of different approaches to that, right? And we have been involved with some of them, as you know, because one thing you could base them on is best practice. If there's a common industry accepted best practice, maybe that's something that I can tie. Um you know, uh, customer behavior to, to say, okay, you're insurable or you're not. If you do these things and you're going to be insurable or you're uh, qualified for a certain discount and rate, rates if you follow these practices. And that's, again, the market at work and that's all good, right? There is a, so to, to make that work, you have to have, it's it's not kind of a traditional actuarial model, right? We're not calculating the probability of a, you know, 60 year old person on, with these health conditions, you know, lasting another five years. We're, we're kind of equating, um, with a bit of a leap here, right? That this good behavior will, in fact, lead to a controlled amount of payouts, right? That, that it'll lower the rate of of uh, bad things happening and hence payouts. And and that's about that's about where we are. I'm not sure we could do better than that right now. Uh, tying sort of behavioral things to to rate setting and insurability is a question. So we've so we've seen lots of good attempts to do that. We've talked to a number of the folks. You know, you could do it from there's Sort of the whole marketplace of external scanners. That sort of look. How do I look from outside? What's my attack surface? And am I talking to risky locations and using risky protocol? And then you know that could help understand the the kind of threat you know that that could be represented. You have sort of internal looks that say you know if you behave this way, you follow these practices, you have these tools in place, and so forth. Um, so I'd tell, it's still, it still feels to me like it's still a bit of a market in flux. I think there's there's also the chaos of every, you know, for a while then becomes every insurer has their own whatever questionnaire or whatever they call it in the survey thing that, you know, and, and you have to deal with a lot of this stuff, right? So you see all these and you go, wait a minute, I'm restating the happies to glads and the reds to glean over and over again, you know, could, could you guys just agree, <laughs> you know, or is there some way to, to gather this data that isn't so uh, one-off and costly to me? so that I can better approach. So, so part of the market trick here will be, you still need to leave room for innovation and for ways for companies to distinguish themselves, right? That they provide a different value than their competitor. At the same time, I, I think it's reasonable for us as consumers to say, you know, again, like we, like we spoke earlier, I, I have a kind of a social expectation. You're not gonna put me at unnecessary risk as my supplier. <laughs> And so, you know, as my insurance company, you're going to be there to cover me and I have a sense for what that means and what your expectations are and that I won't get surprised at the end because I haven't done something that you expected and I just didn't understand it. Anyway, so, so I, I, I like where things have headed. I think the discussion is better. I do think there's, there's a ways to go there. It is part of what we talked about before, the sort of incentives and so forth. And the federal government can, can help sort of establish what the overall model looks like uh, I think it's going to be more nuanced than everybody send me on your, all your incidents, and we will have this big pile of actuarial data. That's not the nature of the data that we collect here. I think it's much more complicated, and there's many more variables in it than we know. You know, than what's the you know what what's the cyber equivalent of Florida by by comparison? Well, <laughs> while a complicated question is is relatively easy compared to what we're trying to solve here in general. You know, but there won't be a nice, nice, neat model. As I, as we've said before, uh, active adversaries lie, cheat, and steal, right? So they're, you know, it's like uh, hurricanes were sentient beings who are saying, hey, let's go this way this time, you know? And I, I think we do have to account for that. Uh, at the same time, we can't paralyze our economy. So how, how do we, uh, you know, again, have a way to set what the expectation is in a way that allows the market to incentivize, to say, um, you know, these behaviors have an economic outcome or potential economic outcome. That's kind of, you know, we, we do some of that through the state government things, right? The who, state governments who are incentivizing voluntary adoption of better practice. You know, if you handle data of this type in this state, and the bad thing happens. If you have behaved this way, then you get some incentive, right? Some, some sweetener, protection from liability, cap on damages or whatever. It, it's different in every state. But that's a, again, that's not a perfect model, but it's a healthier place than we have been. And I think it's within reach. I think we can, you know, I, we often uh, think of states as the place, you know, the, the the testing grounds for democracy or something, you know, sort of experimental, right? Lots of different things get tried in a way that allows the market to respond and start to converge on a way to think about the problem. I, I feel like we're still fairly early to middle on that so
0: agreed agreed a lot of work to be done in that space. but like you say is the um, you know we need to, to know what Florida is. It, it just happens that Florida in our sense is changing both its geographic location every 10 minutes so that we're, we're trying to plot and model It's uh, it's not exactly going to be the, the, the same uh, elements.
1: Well your, your, your point that you made earlier, Sean was a, is a great one. We're just every day we're making risk decisions whether we know it or not and every day we also learn things that may have made all of our prior decisions completely bad ones and and guess what that's just life today and so we we can't make those surprises go away we can we can plan better for uh, disruptions and uncertainties than we do today collectively but i think that is part of what we're you know we're uh, dealing with here and it, there's no excuse for the same old attacks working all the time you know for the last couple of decades, because those, you can think of those as known hazards, right? Th- these are not rocket science, um, you know, attacks by magicians. These are, you know, mid-level criminals, you know, making a living. And uh, now that it does tell you, right, when the when the uh, economics and the incentive structure is all, is all wrong, <laughs> then, you know, criminals thrive and individual businesses are hurt. And we're still you know, still struggling with all that. I do want to come back to one thing you, you talked about the open source stuff. That I, again, I think that's a great area. It's another sort of systemic area uh, of risk, as you mentioned. We talked about it in the Cyber Safety Review Board, and Randy really hit some great points on that. There, it's a it's a case where, you know, uh, this is one of these you know system thinking kind of problems, right? Uh, this came up in the in the deliberations with the CSRB. Individual enterprises can make what seems to be a rational choice. You might look around and say, hmm, who is the I don't know, uh, high security federal agencies? Who are they using for patch management? Who are they using for? What software are they building their stuff on? Huh, I don't have the people that can go analyze all that open source code. I'll use what the other guys are using. And you start to build that up and you suddenly find, you know, so you might individually as an enterprise make a, a reasonable choice. That's the market leader. That's the code that's been reused tens of thousands of times by enterprises all around the world. That's the one that's got support of a big company helping to write the code for it. That might be a perfectly rational choice, right? Given that you can't take that code apart yourself and figure out what all the risks are. And then, but you collectively stand back and you go, wait a minute, why is the majority of the U.S. government now dependent upon a piece of code that was sort of figuratively written by two guys in a garage? That... Right? So there's two levels of risk there to think about, right that say, and it, it's not there's no blame on the you know, the, the people I know in the open source community are highly conscientious and they know that they play an important role in the ecosystem. In fact, they're proud of it. But is it impossible for them to threat model every possible use of their code? Right? And so you, you know, you cannot, you know the question to me, The the way I thought of it in the CSRB discussion was not, can we build perfect software? The question is, you know, people don't really write large, complicated systems from scratch. They compose them from pieces, open source and hardware and, you know, all kinds of things. And and so the question about risk is always an integration risk. You know, what risk am I introducing by, by embedding this open source work into my environment? right so the question is not did i build perfect code is it the question might be is there enough information for me to make a reasonable decision that's they advertised it this way but this is sort of conceptually what's behind things like s bombs right the, the, the goal isn't quite the goal isn't perfection the goal is i'm going to use your code uh, are there risks associated with it i should know about before i integrate it in here and would i design my architecture differently would i you know Filter differently the calls to that code. What would I do? But do I have enough information to make a decision about risk? Because you can't make them all up front, right? You can't anticipate all the risks up front when you're writing the code. And by the way, typically they're very under resourced. They, they, you know, even if we theoretically could uh, anticipate every possible use of the code, we we aren't we aren't resource wise physically able to do so. So anyway, so so that's that's kind of the dilemma that we have here, right? And I think so. That's why. Um, there have been some ups and downs, but that, that's why I think uh, things like an SBOM, when I think of them conceptually as this, I mean, you know, the point is to inform the next level of integration, then I think that's that's a that's a great theme and I think is one that, again, the federal government has put a lot of effort into and I think is, is consistent with this idea of I want to bring more transparency to these risk decisions, but I can't do it on my own. I need sort of that information to be created and conveyed to me in a way that... You know, I can integrate it into the way that I think about the, these risks, uh, you know, long past the time the code was actually written.
0: Well, exactly. And I think that leads us to it's the, um, you know, one of the things I say, Tony, and it's a little <laughs> bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know how I am. But one of the things I say <laughs> is with any technology procurement or integration of a technology, a software, whatever it happens to be. It's that element of risk that it's a vulnerability yet to be identified. Just because it's secure today doesn't mean it's secure tomorrow. I've got to think about those risks continuously building defense in depth and things of that nature. And it's funny when people hear me say that, you know, they either laugh or think I'm joking. And I'm not really. It is, I'm really thinking about this potential vulnerability in anything that we have installed, you know, the software that we're using right now that could be exploited today, tomorrow, in the future, um, or you know, like it could be right now. And those things leave me into, uh, you know, elements of um, sovereignty, as it were, of thinking about not only the data that I'm using with respective technology capability, but also how we're using it and where it's being used is, uh, you know, questions I often ask and, and pose to myself across um Where do I see an integration of control that can help us in this space? Because it's one of those elements of trying to think of innovation and trying to think of a problem, but the problem being so huge and trying to tackle it with kind of this model thinking, and we've we've spoken about this even in this episode, is sometimes the model cannot accept all the variables that you're trying to put in with it that would make it a a decision, get you to a more, I'm not sure if it's the purity of the decision or getting to a decision that has... Um a consequence. And the, the reason I say that is there are models that are very useful, but are not the reliance upon me making a decision. It informs my decision, but I don't use it as the only point in the decision-making process. And I try and think of ways through that when I'm trying to articulate risk to individuals and organization, this organization and others, as to the representative of Ability to think about that, not as a point in time, but as a continuous element of monitoring and operationalization to restrict the vulnerability that could be in play and trying to do that with um, enough vigor to, one, as you mentioned, enable business, right? We, we can't just shut all of these systems down. And like you say, you know, our, our testing protocol is every potential thing that could happen to respective infrastructure. It just doesn't exist. There's not enough time. It, it just wouldn't be conducive, obviously. But it does leave these open questions as to you know, is it these small ticking time bombs that we're just trying to manage, you know, we're we're juggling, as it were, the hot potato, as it were, until, you know, until it sets off or whatnot. It's just one of those things that it's been in the back of my head, if you know what I mean. And it's not the thing that keeps me up at night, but it's the thing that keeps me thinking about what I need to do tomorrow when I do go to sleep, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think that those are uh, very thoughtful points, Sean. I think the, um, you know, one of the, 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 the I, I once almost got, well, I, I sort of laughed out of the meeting. <laughs> I was at the Pentagon and, and here's, here was the, the point I was trying to make. Uh, Cause I said this line, this is what got people to laugh. That It wasn't personal. Uh, imagine the defense department, the DOD as a nimble adopter of technology. Okay. And I was, Saying that based upon my experience right as a defender, but working inside an intelligence agency at NSA and looking at the complications of attacking at a nation state level and the expense and the quality of the people and the infrastructure and so forth. And a huge part of the economics of attacking, right, is to understand the target. And the point was, the point I was trying to make was, because the DOD, very conscientiously, right, makes incredible investments to try and understand risk and you know make wise decisions. But it doesn't lead to nimble adoption of technology. And so, so in some sense, from the attacker's perspective, you're a sitting duck. Nothing changes, right? You still have old technology, old vulnerabilities. Everyone knows your topology. They know who talks to who. They know your order of battle and so forth. And... That is such a tremendous advantage to the attacker that you know it's worth thinking about, right? In your sort of strategic brain, Sean, right? It's this sort of the, in some sense, the, the the more nimble we are, the harder a target we become, right? You sort of force the adversary to to make expenditures, to redo their reconnaissance, to you know to take more opportunities to be exposed, to be seen. So you have to remember the bad guy has a has a threat model also, right? They don't like to get caught. They don't want to spend more money. They have a boss. They have a budget, right? So you have to be able to calculate that, to think about that. How do I raise uncertainty in the mind of the attacker? So we often think of defense as I'm sort of passively here, you know, waiting to get hammered, when in fact we could be more dynamic in the way we think of it. There is a value, right, to being and to have quick processes to get to the next version, to patch my systems up, to acquire the next technology, right? To be able to re, sort of restart things quickly. And there were, there, was, there were experiments in those days about, could I just randomly restart my mail servers and then see who seems to be reconnecting? You know, things like that, right? Could I sort of force adversarial behavior? And adversaries, by the way, don't like change on the part of their targets. So a typical reaction is, again, this is based on observation, is then they try to attack you in a place that has more permanence, right? So, hey, the serendipitous bugs, it's harder for me to get to them. Maybe I should need to go after their supply chain. Well, now you're asking the adversary to spend a lot more money, time, risk in a different way so they can get more permanence, right? I want to get into the distribution of your OS. Up. Oh, it Number one, that knocks out a significant percentage of attackers right away. But it also creates a different kind of behavior for which you have other sensors, right? Other defensive measures you can take to help you recognize that, to say, why well, can, you know, again, the DOD, you do things like blind by technology and, you know, do, do things to sort of confuse, right? So that the, uh, as the attacker tries to come in through, uh, routes with more permanency in fact manipulate so the idea is you're always in this back and forth game and again this is you know my 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 thinking was obviously about national security stuff from back in the day but but you know what you've tried to do again part of it is it's good business by the way to be a good nimble adopter of technology right to have the low transition costs you know, enough control of my environment to be able to patch quickly, identify when, when an employee leaves, I can quickly, you know, their traces are gone. <laughs> they don't get to come back. You know, I, I've got a lot of agility built in, which is good business, but it's also good security. And so you want to be able to think about that in those terms, in addition to their kind of business benefit of it's it's just good management my IT. So that's why, you know, the ability to work closely between your job and the CIO's job is so important. Um uh, because there, there's sort of no standalone security things, right? It's hopelessly interlocked with all the IT management, operational stuff, business support that that's going on all the time. So again, I think that's again, I, and I appreciate John the, the chance. You know, you're you're by far the CISO I've spent the most time with in my entire career, and it's been a revelation. You know, because it is uh, complicated, right? It's not it's not a hunker down job. It's a speaker to boards, but it's technologist, it's risk assessor, it's you know you're trying to integrate you're a, a business leader right sort of well, wait a minute uh, you know you could be on the street corner telling people to spend more in security but you know we're, we're still delivering service here and we're going to or we don't or we're, there's no reason for us to exist so bringing anyway, so all bring all that together but of to bring this dimension of you know recognizing you know, we we used to use that phrase in the controls development right offense informs defense and people have different interpretations of that but one of the interpretations is to remember that the attacker, the attacker to you, has a model too. We can't assume that they're perfect. In fact, we want to be able to manipulate time and space to cause them cost, to cause them uncertainty, to cause them worry. And so those are, and that's legitimate. That's a fair way to think about defense.
0: Oh, absolutely. One of the things I uh, align it to, and I you know, built models, um, well, starting to, uh, I'll give an update on another episode. But what I say is we have a threat profile, but the attackers is their opportunity profile. And that's what I want to change is that their opportunities are reduced with our impact of capability to, one, representatively change risk uh, and modify our profile to build a defensive capability. And like you say, the adoption of technologies and uh, approaches to... um, not only the implementation, but also the users of that technology to be better informed really does help an approach uh, for the organization to um, mitigate those risks. It really does. It really does. Well, in our last few minutes, uh, it it cannot go in 2023 without an honorable mention. You already mentioned it is AI, chat GTP, generative AI, large language models. Um, It was now... The reason I had predicted it, I think Tony is because I was the first to provide my predictions back, so I hit it real quick because uh, you know I wanted to look smart, like oh yeah, I'm making a huge prediction with AI. <laughs> but it has come to you know elements of fruition. It is the buzzword. It is where everybody is focused. We're starting to see the US, EU, even ISO 42000 now in terms of AI adoption implementing controls with AI flavor and things of that nature. And it's, uh, um, you know, there's permanency. Uh, you know, I think it's, um, there's, you know, before AI and after AI, as it were, uh, in terms of uh, people in my position and operational analysts and things of that nature. Uh, but certainly had a um, an impact, but I think in some cases it's, um, one, we've not seen, obviously, its complete life cycle for the ultimate impact that it's had. But it's, um, I think there's also a maturity that we need to have because, you know, you, you get to the, the vendor space and, and demo land where I say everything is perfect. And this is AI driven and, you know, everything's AI now. And it's, okay, we've got to align what we mean to that and even getting into security automation uh, orchestration and response that I talked about earlier is uh, it's one of those things we need to, I think, better define not only for our own sanity, but also making sure that others are living up to the expectations of what is artificially intelligent and what is using beneath that machine learning and even beneath that deep learning. So anyway.
1: No, I think, you know, the the jury's still out. A lot of uh, uh, people experimenting. And one of the things that makes it, I think, an exciting time in this, you know, people have been, you know, AI was going to change the world every every year for the last 25 years or something like that. But this, is I, I, a phrase I, I've used before, Sean, never in, underestimate the power of uh, cheap and easy. I think I used it in this year's, uh, but, you know, it's the fact that it's access, accessible, Right, folks like you and I can just kind of grab it off the shelf. There's, you don't need specialized degrees or you know really abstract knowledge. You can sort of play with the tools. That, you know, it's accessibility encourages experimentation, which leads to lots of bad results. By the way, you know not not terribly useful, but interesting. But also encourages investment and you know, sort of thinking about the possibilities, you know, at a scale that I don't think we've ever seen in this industry. And so it's an exciting time. And I would say, you know, just speaking about the defensive side of this, there is so much grunt work in this industry, you know, for people who deal with incidents, for example, and operational stuff, just the correlating, gathering, moving data, you know, that kind of stuff. Boy, it just feels like it's, it's ripe for, uh, you know, significant improvement Without like massive leaps in technology, right? These are things that we kind of know how to do, but there's just the tedium of moving stuff and and translating stuff that I think is just well within reach uh, to make great progress on. So the humans can do human worthy work, and I think that's that's a, a exciting time there. Of course, it gives the same advantage to the bad guys, right? So the you know lots of people have talked about the improvements in fishing and the tailoring and the you know, better grammar, if nothing else, in phishing attempts. And so, and, and that's all true too, right? It's not, so it, that's why I think in the, in the, the, the points for 2023, I said something about amplifier, right? It's a, it, it sort of amplifies right away things that we know, but it's exciting because I think the fact that, it, you know, it's, you don't need a million dollars, you don't need an advanced degree in AI algorithmics to, to use the technology for something that is, Plausible and interesting, and encourages more experimentation and hence investment. I think it's a, yeah. So we'll we'll see what this next year holds, but I'm excited by that.
0: I think it also leads to just one element um, that we've already talked about with uh, the open source software is that element of abstraction. Is I don't know what's in there. I know it works, but I don't know what's underneath it, and it, it leads to elements of. Trust, you know, ultimately, should I have zero trust for this? But then how do I go through representatively a model with billions of points of, you know, reference, as it were, to create the underlying model to assess its viability and, you know, the underlying ethics of how it was put together. And I just see a a huge number of different elements of this really building out, you know, in in a lot of cases, its own industrial vertical in terms of uh, elements of assessment here. But anyway...
1: Yeah, no, great, great points. I think there's, you're right. That's another area that bears watching.
0: Absolutely. Tony, well, we had a great 2023. Uh, Thank you. Um, We've got predictions coming out in 2024. You'll see a blog post about that. And like, again, next year, we'll review those and see how close we were. Um, I think we did really well this year. I think, uh, you know, everybody that contributed to that, um, Again, a lot of thought leadership in this space, a lot of great people. And uh, again, yourself, Tony, just uh, uh, really great stuff.
1: Oh, right back at you, Sean. I, yeah, you know, and the just for the uh, listener, you know, the act of compiling that, right? We each wind up kind of throwing a couple of pet ideas, and it come, the next person chimps in and goes, Oh, yeah, that's pretty clever. And then the next person comes in, Oh, that's, and it's, you know, it's not that we're great predictors, it's like uh, fascinating and People, you know, each have their own viewpoint. And boy, I really like, oh, I said a couple of notes to some of our contributors at CIS. To say, Thank you for pointing that out. That was really clever, you know, and, and I wouldn't have n- never occurred to me, but it was something that's important to them. And I think it's certainly important to, to our listeners and to the broader you know, constituency of CIS. So so it's actually a fun exercise for us all and gives us a chance to, yeah, we wish you had a crystal ball too. I know the, but hey, you know, we're also uh, conscious of all those things you talked about, right? The rapid change and all that stuff. So it's it's good conversation, gives us, gives inspires us to, to some action here. 100%.
0: Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you to the audience. Remember to subscribe in all the usual ways. Uh, Any interview questions, comments, concerns, reach out to us at podcast at cisecurity.org. With that, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the show today. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.